welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Snow Himbo. He's a Canadian, a Marxist, a content creator, and you can find him on the Indie News Network as the co-host of Nobody Wants to Work Anymore. His other projects include Random at Worst on YouTube and So Bad It's Good. Thanks for listening. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. Solidarity forever. shows nobody wants to work anymore random at worst and so bad it's good welcome to the podcast snow himbo ah great to be here how's it going everybody so yeah let's we did a little bit on the pre-call but we decided to just go with the introductions and make it live so this podcast we're just winging it here tell me about snow himbo what's that mean what's that all about uh so these All of these seem to have a funny story, and I don't think mine's uh, an exception, really. Um, I was arguing in Discord with uh, a bunch of, for lack of a better word, uh, chuds, and um, uh, they knew I was Canadian. Be, uh, you, you'd be surprised how often that's like the first job someone makes. It's like, oh, you're Canadian. It's like, What's a chud, I, by the way? Uh, chud would be... Derogatory term of some kind? Derogatory term for like uneducated conservative, I suppose. Okay. Um, I they don't seem to like me, um, but hey, that's uh, that's another story. So basically, we were arguing back and forth, and uh, some of my some of my fellow comrades were there too, and one of them just fires back with like, "I'm blocking you now, Snow Himbo," <laughs> and we killed ourselves laughing just because it, it was one of those things where like the diss was so absurd that you yeah. you couldn't do anything but laugh. So it was like I had a couple run-ins with these these clowns where they just kept using it. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna own it. Whatever. <laughs> So yeah, snow. I guess being the being Canadian part, and himbo. I guess being the we think you're dumb part. So that's that. <laughs> they got you, man. They they got you pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Nah, I'm just kidding. You had the last laugh. No, you got your uh, internet moniker. Yeah, I mean, and that's uh, that's definitely helpful, especially when you're applying to a job and you don't want uh, don't want employers looking up your radical takes on uh social media which they absolutely do everybody <laughs> yeah that's why i go anonymous on this podcast and why i mm. also go anonymous on the internet uh there are consequences to speaking truth to power and for having um you know radical views especially political views um what do you think about that what do you think about the consequences and the the uh, censorship 
the surveillance, um, you know, constantly directed at, you know, certainly the right and the left. Um, yeah. Obviously, I guess the Proud Boys, uh, you're a Canadian, right? But you're pretty, I'm sure, I'm sure you're pretty familiar. Everybody knows about America. It's the only country that matters, right? Well, I mean, no, I'm kidding. I kind of, I'm totally kidding. No, I, I kind of phrase it this way. I'm like, because I, I get that a lot where it's like, um, and yes, I'm more of the Proud Boys. Uh, but yeah. I get that a lot where they're like, you're Canadian, why do you care about American politics? And I'm like, well, think about what America d would do for five seconds if I led a socialist revolution up here. Yeah. We'd be the next Cuba before you could blink. They would already be like no weaponizing the CIA before we even got to dictatorship of the proletariat. Um, so I've, so I've been told that Canada is kind of in between Europe, maybe not quite as far left as, or, you know, socialist, demo, demo, socialist, democratic, I guess, is that saying it right? Um, I guess, you know, kind of like the European and the Scandinavian countries. So they're not quite, Canada is not quite that far on the socialist scale or that far left, but certainly not as far right as um, America. So somewhere kind of in the middle ground between America and Europe. Is that right? Would you say that's a pretty good uh, comp? You know what? I think that's uh, I, I think they, that's a pretty accurate take on it. Um, we are a capitalist country. Um, we have we have socialized medicine, which doesn't include dental and sort of really somewhat. Yeah, which so sucks. it took a capitalist or a lawyer, right, to to decide like eyes and teeth are part of healthcare. That's ridiculous, right? Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's really uh, it's really funny. Um. I mean, I I have family and friends who live in the states, and you know, it's there's there's definitely a difference. Um, you know, we do have a lot of our healthcare that is socialized, and uh, that that is most certainly helpful. But uh, yeah, we're kind of we're kind of in between. Um, up here, we do have you know a a ton of wealth inequality. Um, you know, I. Uh, I know people who joke that we're basically just a uh, a handful of mining companies in a trench coat. Um, <laughs> well, that's what that's and, what America is a handful of oil companies in a trench coat with a military guarding it, I guess. Yep, and um, you know, it's uh, we have a lot of the same problems. Really, we have a liberal party that is effectively useless. Uh, let me know when this starts becoming familiar. <laughs> and this is Justin up. Trudeau, right? The Justin Trudeau administration. I think some people paint him in America as some like socialist, but you would say he's pretty pretty moderate. Um, I mean, it's it's this weird thing where it's a phenomenon I've only noticed in the West, where conservatives are really obsessed with. They really want you to believe that liberals are like secret Marxists or something, when in reality it's like. There's not really too much difference between the liberal and conservative parties. Um, Let me interject here, though, because I, I see this a mm -hmm. lot on the left. We we accuse you know Trump and every conservative and every right winger for being fascist for for being a Nazi. Uh, maybe sometimes uh, there is some comp, but I think both sides do it. Both sides throw mud and and these these political terminology uh, that we use these political terms like socialist nazi fascist conservative neoliberal all these terms are propagandized and uh, chomsky's my favorite um, author and political commentator and he says basically these terms of political discourse um, they have a traditional meaning 
but typically how they're used, it's the complete opposite, you know? So what do you think about that, mm-hmm. though? I mean, I agree with you. Certainly people that are slightly left-leaning or even um, centrists are, are sometimes painted as socialists, especially in America. But what about our categorization of people on the right, so-called conservatives and neocons, constantly? I mean, you can't go on Twitter for more than 15 minutes before someone's being called a Nazi and a, and a neo, uh, I'm sorry, a Nazi or a neo-fascist, you know? No, that's a that's a really good point, and I didn't I I haven't actually seen it that way. Um, I feel like these terms. Sometimes I wonder if these terms are used deliberately in bad faith to kind of set the bar. I think so. Because, I think they because, are both sides. Yeah, because if if you if you have one side that's like a super fascist and another side which is like all of the worst exaggerations of the USSR or whatever whatever yeah. McCarthyism propaganda people are chomping on in that day then essentially you're creating like a fake battlefield whereas in reality like there's not and it's kind of the same it's kind of the same with the states too wherein it's like you know both both parties are pretty much subservient to corporate donors yep subservient to corporate rule um they're perfectly fine with a handful of people owning the whole planet um but they have to make it like this extreme polarization, which we know in psychology is splitting. You have to make everything either one or zero, black or white. Um, but yeah, I never thought of it like that insofar as, you know, you do see a lot of that on the left too, where it's, you know, like, and I get into a lot of in- interesting conversations on social media where some of them, they're they're just, they're trying to paint like everyday Trump voters as fascists and all of that and frankly i just think i think people on social media are kind of echo chambered and i think people on political social media are very echo chambered and they kind of don't realize the average parole um the average member of the working class they're not even close to as political as some of us are um they might vote conservative because their parents voted conservative they might vote liberal because they saw a cool ad and they thought, you know what? Um, yeah, I like this particular talking point or particular issue they're speaking to. Um, but to to say that these large swaths of people are either fascists or communists, I mean, I mean, a weird thing on both sides I've found is if you press either side to define one of those words or the other, they seem to struggle. <laughs> That's what I do on Necessary Illusions. That's definitely what I do. I'm a philosopher for sure. I'm a far lefty, um, but I, I definitely don't pretend to be some moderate, you know, but I'm, I'm just kind of calling out what I see on, you know, Twitter and social media about, you know, the left, um, everything we, we see on the right that we don't uh, agree with, um, you know, we call, you know, again, label it fascist or whatever, neo-fascism and all that sort of stuff. And um, I, I really like... Chomsky, because, um, you know, I think he's pretty cool, pretty level-headed. He's seen a lot. He's seen, you know, World War II and, and, the, and the fascism in, in Europe kind of um, coming of age. Uh, and, and speaking of cool, common, collected, uh, Snow Himbo, man, you're real chill. So it doesn't seem like politics gets you too riled up, does it? Um, Sometimes it does, for sure. Yeah, me too. Uh, sometimes I mean, you need to be passionate. But you seem really level-headed, so I'm, I'm, I'm impressed by just kind of your, your world outlook. I, I dig it. Thanks. I, um, I try to, I try to, I I try to kind of approach 
things as logically as I can when I can. Yeah. Um, I just find it more productive in general. Um, but I mean, I think, I think a big problem in a lot of political discourse in general, though, is a lot of these arguments become far too emotional. Yeah. And it's, it's absolutely fine to feel emotions. We all feel them, um, you know, and they're always valid, but I feel like people have to kind of keep it into context where it's like, okay, am I having an emotional reaction to this? And do I maybe need to think about it more before I have like a holistic view on this perspective or that perspective? Um, and I think if more people, more people kind of took that and ran with it a little better, we'd have more produ- productive discourse, I guess I would call it. I was kind of radicalized in the last, I don't know, five years or something like that. And when I first joined Twitter, I actually wasn't on social media for like years, like maybe even a decade, uh, none, completely, you know, blackout. Um, and I got back on Twitter as anonymous, um, you know, not connecting with like high school people or college people, but more so, you know, my political philosophies kind of get out there and have discussions with people. But I've kind of noticed as of late, especially since I started this podcast and you can actually do long form discussion, have a conversation. I don't necessarily want to say debate, you know, because that's just kind of disingenuous. Like you're going to take a position. I'm going to take a position and we're, we're going to refuse to, you know, give in at all. You know, it's kind of silly. It's kind of a silly process, but that's, I kind of found myself, um, I have a lot of people on my Twitter that are new neocons or whatever, you know, and they'll, they'll comment on anything I say. And I'm like, I'm not going to waste, I'm not going to block these people first off. And apparently, uh, X social is going to get rid of that. Uh, it doesn't sound like a great idea, but whatever the, the guys in that case, uh, all these people, all these billionaires are psychopaths, but I really think that, uh, Elon, I, I just don't care for the guy. Um, personally, it's, it's nothing. I mean, I don't think he should exist if you want to go existentialist for billionaires, but just personally, I just don't care for the guy. But anyways, I uh, digress. I, I really don't get engaged in, in, in debates anymore um, on Twitter, like for 100 and whatever, 40 characters. It's so hard. It's so difficult. Uh, and I think it is kind of that disingenuous debate. Like, do you ever think you're going to convince someone on the other side of Twitter to change their mind? The way I've found myself using it is, I just want to build a following with people uh, kind of like an eco chamber that I agree with, you know, and I support their ideas. They support mine. And, you know, maybe when we go into debates uh, outside of our little eco chamber, you know, we got each other's back. Um, But I don't find it all that productive to kind of engage with strangers on Twitter in a debate format. I think if we're going to do that, um, it's going to be like a show like this, you know, a long form debate where you can kind of get points out and have a discussion. And, you know, maybe people are going into this conversation unsure about some things um but actually being able to listen to two people talk it out i think that's a you know great exercise that's why i love the podcast format the the um long-form debate format and it's such a better format i had um uh, someone on from political fight club um rob and uh you know we we talked about um just the differences between like mainstream media uh and chomsky had talked about a lot of it too let me get back to chomsky's point on fascism but he kind of said like Basically, um, you know, you have like two minutes uh, in, in between commercial breaks where you can basically just repeat favorite truths. You can't use, um, you know, uh, information or research and you really can't even say something outside the norm. Uh, and that's kind of what propaganda is. Um, Goebbels said that uh, of the Nazi ministry on propaganda, if you repeat a lie often enough, it becomes truth. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that that's kind of what they do on CNN and MSNBC. Sometimes you got like 10 
eight or ten talking heads just saying, you know, 15 seconds worth of, you know, propaganda, repeating favorite truths of the establishment. Uh, you can't go on there and say, you know, something like, you know, every every post-World War II president was a war criminal. You know, they'd cut you off, you know, uh, probably yeah. smear you uh, after the next commercial break. But you wouldn't even have a chance to defend yourself. Um, in this kind of format, you have like a long-form debate. You can kind of get points out there and, and that kind of stuff. But let me get real, real quick into, because I'm sitting a lot here, as I always do, kind of go off on these tangents. But, um, you know, Chomsky doesn't really like saying, like, he doesn't like comparing things to the Holocaust, uh, naturally. Like, some uh, sometimes... I've actually had people on here that compared the um, the migrant centers or with detention centers on the border to concentration camps. Well, not exactly. I mean, sure, there's similarities for sure, but they're not, um, you know, leading hundreds of people into a shower, gassing them and killing them by the hundreds, by the thousands or by the millions in, in the course of the Holocaust. So they're a little bit different, you know, and same with um, fascism in Europe, like Chomsky kind of. Talked about being Jewish in the United States and watching watching the rise of fascism, first Spain and Germany, and then uh, Hitler was kind of, you know, going from country to country, victory to victory, and, you know, there, there was, um, you know, use of violence, certainly use of force, um, rounding up people and sending them to the ghettos, and then eventually concentration camps, and then eventually industrialized killing uh, in a Holocaust, um, in the Holocaust, where I think... I don't know, tens of millions of people were executed. Um, so, you know, these, these terms have meaning. So that's why I kind of admire Chomsky and everything he's written and everything he's done and said and even lived through. Um, he tries not to, you know, compare modern times to fascisms, although there's no question about it. There's a corporate state nexus. Um, there's no doubt, um, you know, a close connection between Silicon Valley and surveillance technology and the United States government. I also tweeted an article, um, Saudi Arabia too. Twitter was, I guess, Social X or whatever it's called now is sharing information with, um, the Saudi Arabian government. But yeah, there's certainly corporate state nexus and connections between these corporations and, and the state. Um, but there's definitely similar, there's definitely similarities between fascism and some of the things that were going on in Europe in the 1930s and, and, and whatnot. But there's also a lot of differences too. Wouldn't you agree? Um, yeah. So, um, my problem basically with making these comparisons is it's not just that it kind of debases, for example, the Holocaust, um, and kind of waters it down. It does. The the uh, the main argument I have against those kind of comparisons is anybody who sees that it kind of defeats. Like if you're referring something to the Holocaust, unless it's on the magnitude of the Holocaust, anyone seeing that referral or comparison is not is going to at le- at the very least question. Um, question uh your knowledge or your level of good faith because for example if you're if you're comparing something to the holocaust and the magnitude is nowhere near the greatness people are going to see that and they're going to be like okay well um i don't really think as you said you know while there's certainly bad elements here um it's nowhere near on the same level. So why is this person making this comparison? Does it seem the same thing to this person? And that's, that's why I don't think they're productive. Um, as far as debates, I would say, um, I'm not a fan of debates in general. Um, I, I almost always would rather just have a discussion with someone without the debate tag attached, because I feel like in a lot of debates, um, 
it almost encourages the people participating to act in bad faith because in a debate there needs to be a winner and there needs to be a loser. Um, and in just a conversation, you can focus more on making headway or finding common ground or correcting misconceptions. And there isn't this like, this like need, this, uh, this, this desire to come off as like the victor and this anxiety of coming off as the loser. And I see that a lot in like BreadTube and among different streamers on the left or the right. You, you see a lot of this like, oh, person gets schooled in a debate. Yeah, or this yeah. person gets schooled. And it's like, I don't think it should be about getting schooled. I think it should be about two people uh, arriving at a more educated position than they started out as. And if that means one person gets educated, I don't, I'm not sure if I necessarily agree with the idea that they lost. Because I feel like if you're, <clears throat> if you're wrong about something and someone proves you wrong, I, I kind of feel like you won because really that person just made you smarter and you're going to be better for it and your arguments are going to be better as well. So yeah, Rob on political fight club was seeing the exact same stuff. Um, and he actually goes outside the eco chamber and, you know, tries to engage with, you know, moderates, conservatives, whatever people's self proclamation is of their political ideology. Sometimes people are even confused and might say one thing, but it actually might mean another thing, but yeah, we're, we're not out here. At least I'm not out here and, Maybe, maybe some people are, but, you know, just doing a quick whip, you know, or dunking on someone like, oh, they let, they left an opening. They, they, they got this date wrong or they got this word wrong. It's like, I'm going to dunk on them and debates over. I won, you know, silly stuff like that, where if you're really talking about, you know, political, the political system, foreign policy, war, you know, these are, these are complex issues. The world's a complex place. Society's a complex place. I just did an hour and a half solo podcast on the war in Ukraine. I went back, you know, maybe a hundred or so years, um, you know, kind of the, the, the cold war, world war two to talked about the, the region, um, talked about some of the political systems. Um, and I didn't even scratch the surface, you know, I feel like it's pretty obvious, um, at least the war in Ukraine that, you know, Russia is the aggressor, but no question, uh, they were provoked by NATO who constantly is expanding, and has expanded uh, even after the Soviet Union collapsed, continued to expand, add more countries, and basically, you know, have this hostile military alliance all around Russian borders with nuclear, um, with the threat of nuclear missiles, nuclear weapons. So um, mm -hmm. I think there's two wrongs here. Don't make a right, you know, if you want to go back to, you know, whatever, so tough you're, maybe stuff you're taught in grade school. But yeah, I think Russia and Putin are, are, are is bad. They're the aggressor. That was the supreme crime of Nuremberg during World War II. But also you can't, um, you, you know, you can't discount the fact that Russia was provoked. Uh, NATO is pretty clearly, to me, a, a hostile military alliance. And the people of Russia have been under nuclear threat since basically, you know, World War II ended. Yep. Um, no, uh, no disagreements there, really. Um, <clears throat> I've, I've been a huge, and I know this is impossible to do under capitalism, because as, as uh, a wise man once said, imperialism is the highest form of capitalism. Um, <clears throat> Who said that? Uh, that would be Lenin, I believe. Oh, okay. Vladimir Lenin. Vladimir Lenin. He, Quoting Lenin as saying imperialism was the highest stage of capitalism, my point really was um, more so to kind of describe, uh, 
I, I suppose the climate we're in, wherein your first question is, why is America and its allies even even concerning themselves at all uh, with other countries? They shouldn't be. They should be taking care of their own people. Lord knows they could use it. Everybody I know in the States is struggling right now. Um, but also the question as to why why do we still have NATO? What is its purpose? Um, these are questions that far more people need to be asking. And I'd, I'd argue that one of the big purposes it does have, not on paper, though, is imperialism. Just outright. So, yeah, why do we have... Um... Why do we have NATO, especially after the Soviet Union collapsed? If the, if the whole point of NATO was, you know, kind of to counter uh, Soviet Union and nuclear arsenal, um, you know, it doesn't make sense to keep it after uh, the, dis the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Uh, do, you, do you know the first thing the United States did foreign policy-wise after the Soviet Union collapsed? Well, what was that? Invade Panama. There was no longer a deterrent or right. a military right. threat. So it invaded Panama. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the military budget not long after um, the Soviet Union collapsed, the military industrial complex continued to rise um, for, you know, uh, half a century or so. Um, it was the Russian threat and blah, 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 and uh, that, that, that we were fighting. And then the change to all of a sudden we need to fight global terrorism, the war on terror, which is, I guess, since the 1980s until today is the main enemy of the United States. Although we have a lot, apparently Iran, China. In Russia, um, and I believe China hasn't invaded anywhere, any foreign country in 50 years. So, yeah, I mean, certainly no. Russia, I guess, is a somewhat dangerous country. But what, what people, I don't, I agree with you, though. They're, they're, I don't think there should be a NATO. I think it would be a much safer world if NATO was dissolved. Um, but I think the funny thing is, like, if you read some of the mainstream press in the United States, uh, these these intellectuals, you know, these intelli intelligentsia or whatever you want to call the people, the basically the subservient uh, mainstream media, uh, the political the political class, the agenda setting media, they they walk this fine line where you know Russia is you know a joke, the military is losing, it can't even defeat a country, you know on its borders, you know it can't even defeat Ukraine, um, it's having problems, you know. 10 or 20 or 30 miles from its border in, in conquering this, you know, this uh, sad little country that, you know, um, I guess some people know as the Ukraine. But also, we must also um, walk the fine line that, yeah, Russia is a is a imminent threat and uh, they are a superpower. And we have to continue to increase the military industrial complex because Russia is this incredible threat to humanity, to the United States, to security. Uh, they're constantly bouncing back and forth between, you know, uh, Russia is completely inept and it's just a joke. To oh, we got to keep expanding the military. We we got we have to go over. We have to go north of a trillion dollars, you know, for the um, for the military industrial complex and the military budget. It's it's almost comical to watch them flip back and forth. Sometimes even in the same show. Sometimes even in the same segment, sometimes even the same article, you know, they're they're a threat to humanity and, and the world, Russia, uh, and yet they, they can't even conquer one uh, country directly on its borders. That's um, that's funny. Not to do too much of a callback here, but the enemy is both weak and strong. Is actually one of the core uh, core uh, features of fascism. They always Ooh. have to make someone both 
a total joke, as you said, or the an existential threat to humanity. Um, yeah. And you see this game, you see this game being played across the political spectrum. You see it with CNN referring to Russia that way, or um, you know, you see it with a lot of people on the right referring to China that way, or Cuba sometimes that way. Um, it's it's a popular tactic. Um, Iran, definitely Iran, North Korea, you know, all these, all these are enemy states, uh, the United States. And it's funny, like, uh, when sometimes we get articles here by the mainstream media saying the world is in agreement that, you know, Cuba is a terror state or something like that. And when really the world means a handful of countries in Western Europe, the United States, Australia, and Canada, (laughs) or, you know, maybe Japan, maybe South Korea, that's, that's the world. You know what I mean? Yep. What they really mean by that is the capitalists are in agreement. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that's kind of the thing. And I mean, that's something I try to do a lot with most of my shows, actually, is to just kind of set, correct the record and provide a different perspective. Because in the West here, we are easily the most propagandized group of people Definitely. in existence. And there's, it's so pervasive and so multi-generational and so powerful that you'll have people calling out propaganda and correctly identifying things as propaganda, and then they'll regurgitate a different layer of propaganda that they're not even aware existed. And you have to peel back different layers of, you know, propaganda. For example, you'll have... You'll have some people correctly calling out the propaganda when it comes to the proxy war in Ukraine. Um, and and then they'll they'll go and regurgitate some some like McCarthyite era red scare propaganda about like the USSR, for example. Um, I feel like I feel like people really need to examine and accept the fact that some of our propaganda has been some of our propaganda is so powerful that yeah, it's effective. That's why that's why we get, that's why we're deluged with propaganda because it's actually effective in controlling the minds of, of the population. It's very effective. Yep, um, you see that uh, you see that a lot with any sort of anti-left propaganda um, because they need to they can't offer any any alternative to late stage capitalism. They can't have that under any means um, because it would threaten you know, the moneyed interests. Um, but also, I mean, for example, you'll see you'll see someone's grandfather, someone on the street, your dad, um, and two of your siblings, all with the same propaganda. So it seems it seems less less obvious because of how pervasive it is. Especially especially with anything on like my God, anything on any of the mainstream media uh apparatuses apparati (laughs) who cares um i mean you'll it's so weird to me running into people in my life who will just be like they'll just regurgitate a talking point from like cnn or fox news verbatim and they'll just say that casual in conversation and i'm like you just took that from the tv you didn't do anything <laughs> with it. You literally just listened to that like five seconds ago. I, I heard it. I was here. <laughs> yeah. Can I, can I re- regurgitate a, mm-hmm. uh, my favorite quote about uh, propaganda? I, I really got to stop 
quoting Chomsky on every episode, but uh, here we are. Uh, I know people, a lot of people on the left have their issues with Chomsky, and I don't defend everything he says, but I like a lot of it. He's got some good stuff. I got, I don't know, at least 50 of his books here. So that's the, whole go- that's the whole point of good propaganda. You want to create a slogan that nobody's going to be against and everybody's going to be for. Nobody knows what it means because it doesn't mean anything. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Um, Chomsky's got a lot of good stuff. Uh, I do have some issues with him, but I mean, my perspective's always been like, a good take's a good take. It doesn't matter who it comes from. If someone's right on an issue, you can just say, hey, this person has the correct take on this issue. And it doesn't mean that you're wholesale subscribed to everything about that person. Um, And that's something I find that's really irritating, especially on social media, wherein there's, there's this there's this really um this really polarizing style of thinking where it's like it gets to the point where if you're like oh i better not retweet that thing because this person is like a bad person yeah i've actually done that too i've i've seen that on twitter i've stopped myself sometimes i'll see a mm-hmm. great uh i'll see a great tweet uh something i totally agree with and i maybe not recognize the face or the the <clears throat> name and I'll go to their Twitter feed, and then I'll see a bunch of stuff that I'm like, ooh, I'm not going here. And I don't even retweet it, you know. But that doesn't take away from that good take, though, does it? No, it absolutely does not. And I feel like if we focus more on ideas and issues and less about people and and the totality of who they are, then I feel like we'd – well, first and foremost, I feel like it would make propaganda a lot harder because people would be wholly focused on issues instead of people. But for example, I mean, I made a tweet a while ago. Uh, I, I think it was Marjorie Taylor Greene who was calling for an audit of all the aid that was sent to Ukraine. So I like that. First off, let me just jump in here. I, yeah. I like some of the stuff she says. She even says like cancel or abolish the FBI. And I'm like, yeah, I'm all about it. The only reason she's yeah. saying that though is because they're going after her guy Trump. But she actually <laughs> says some decent stuff that I agree with. And then, 99% of the time, it's like, okay, you right-wing lunatic, you know? But every now and again, once out of 100 takes, she's, like, right on. And I'm like, yeah, keep going with that. Um, Yeah, it's um, it's it's an interesting dynamic between where we find ourselves. Because, like, Marjorie Taylor Greene will say something about Ukraine and be 100% correct. But then why, why shouldn't have... we? So let me let me quote this too. I think uh, the the Pentagon failed six audits in a row. They couldn't account for something like sixty six or sixty three percent. This is off of memory. Sixty three percent of three point five trillion dollars. Their last audit in twenty twenty two. Yeah, mm-hmm. Marjorie Taylor Greene. I agree with you. We need an audit of the Pentagon and the money going to Ukraine. Where's it going? Yeah. Um... The funny thing, though, is that she'll be dead right on that, and then when it comes to China, just complete blinders. And this is this is the hilarious part where, and it, it goes back to what I said before, wherein you know people don't realize that they're just they're just partially realizing the propaganda. They're just it's partial propaganda. They still have blinders all the way over here. Um, <clears throat> but I mean, at the end of the day, I feel like if you just focused on the fact the fact that that person had a correct take um it would be a lot more productive than this weird society this weird um climate we have right now on social media where it's for example like 
I've been asked more times than I can count. It's like, why are you retweeting that person? They had this bad idea from this point in time. And it's like, I always just ask, like, okay, does that make what they say any less correct? No? Then what is the problem? Um, and the problem is you fall into a trap with that, too, because nobody's perfect. Nobody's going to have the right take 100% of the time. I have had tons of takes that were not right. Um, everybody goes through this. So if we're in this environment where nobody can be wrong ever and nobody can have the right Nobody can like. Yeah, now, now we're getting into cancel culture, where you know, and I, I oppose it. Cancel culture is what they typically do on the on the right, but now we're kind of unfortunately taking the lead on the left and canceling someone for something they said ten, fifteen years ago on social media. I don't necessarily think that that is. I mean, sure. I mean, I guess you know, for I guess our tweets live forever. Some of the stuff we said live forever on the internet. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. And sure, we can bring it to attention that maybe they were wrong about this, that, or the other thing. Um, but yeah, I, I don't like cancel culture. And I want to get into the kind of censorship, surveillance, book banning, book burning. Um, that's typically all, all um, techniques of the right. But unfortunately, I think we have two authoritarian parties in the United States. You know, which brand do you like better, the Democrats or the Republicans? Um, I think we have two business parties. Uh, we have one business party, excuse me, with two factions. Um, but yeah, I think cancel culture is a bad thing. I'm all about the issues. I'm all about ideas. That's kind of what this podcast is about. That's why I'm anonymous and I allow people to come on here and be completely anonymous because I just want to throw around ideas and get that out there. But uh, Snow Himbo, what do you think about, you know, cancel culture and, and you know, that kind of stuff, uh, digging up people's history from 10, 20 years ago on social media and, you know, pointing out their, their wrong take, that kind of stuff. I mean, you know. Is it is it helpful? Is this is this something we should be wasting our time on or spending our time on? Um, so I think it's extremely unhelpful because there's multiple reasons why adults shouldn't think like this. First and foremost, you shouldn't everybody should be able to, as a grown adult, weigh the good and the bad with a singular object. Um there's there's negative and positive qualities to most things in this life. Um, so I don't think it's very, I, I don't think it's very wise in that regard because you're forced, you feel forced to go into one category or another. It's either that person's good or that person's bad. Like I referred to with splitting earlier, but also the reason why I think it's very unhelpful is it, it provides a discouragement um, throughout society really. Um, that people can never get better and can never improve. And as someone who devotes a lot of time, both in my online uh, and personal life to, you know, radicalizing people and, you know, kind of pulling them out of the propaganda, the idea that someone can grow from being, and I have good friends who are devout Marxists now, and they started off as the most conservative people you can, you can imagine. Um, Shout out to Richard Wolf for all the people I've converted yeah. with his videos, by he's the way. He's great. Oh, he's great. Yeah. He, he's the guy I send to whenever someone's like, hmm, yeah, you're right. Maybe I was lied to. I'm like, go to this guy's videos, watch a bunch of them. Trust me. <laughs> and it's like, he's good. He, he just breaks down capitalism and, and like economic systems. He breaks down economics in general and just explains concepts like, you know, 
surplus value, one's labor and whatnot. He explains them so simply that it's like anybody can get it. They don't tune out. It's just like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Why didn't I get that? So, so my favorite three, I it's Chomsky number one for me. I, I read the most Chomsky, but then I would say Richard Wolf and uh, Michael Parenti. I think those are my three favorite kind of oh. philosophers. Um, who's the other one? Chris uh, Hedges, right? He's got some good stuff too, I yep. believe. Yeah. Yep. Love Hedges, love Parenti. Um, timeless, really. Um, yeah, we're in complete alignment there. Let me um, tell you about Chomsky and why I think he's onto something because his books were banned in the United States and in Russia. And I'm actually an anarchist, as is Chomsky. Um, but I'm no, I'm no, I don't like the Soviet Union. I wouldn't want to live under their rule. Um, I've never, as an anarchist, I've never read or learned about a government that I've liked. So I, I kind of, I oppose all concentrated power, especially unjust power. I think all systems of power, uh, if they are illegitimate and unjust, should be dismantled. I don't want to live in the Soviet Union, and this is kind of where I get into it with Marxists. That's fine. We can have a disagreement. I'm an anarchist. I, I would like a, a society where nation states dissolve, and we have loosely affiliated um, maybe, maybe federations uh, of local communities um, with no standing armies, hopefully without central banks and certainly without corporations uh, anarcho-syndicalism is my, I guess, philosophy, at least my favorite philosophy. And I got marks right here. I always have people on uh, one of the first books because I always pull it out. I read Marx. He's got some good stuff. Here it is. Das Kapital. I got it nice and thick. Um, yeah. I got that's actually more a, than that, that's too. That's a I game changer. I, I got this one, too. Wage, labor, capital, value, price, and profit. I mean, he's a, he, has, he's, he brought a lot of good ideas to economics, which is an area I like to study. Here's a hot take that I liked. Uh, economics is basically a, the study to justify why people deserve to be poor and die. <laughs> Someone said that, and I, mm -hmm. I think I elaborated on it a little bit, but that's pretty much um, the way I see economics, uh, you know, to justify why people were living in poverty, uh, why there's inequality, and why some people just deserve to be de to die and you know be homeless. You know, that's it's it's a really it's a really dismal. I think they call it the dismal science, which of course it's not a science; it's a it's a humanities. So there's maybe some numbers and some graphs in it, but it's certainly no uh, quantum physics or I don't know whatever else. But sorry, I was going off on a tangent. I'm not a big fan of the Soviet Union. I'm not a big fan of China. I see a lot of authoritarianism there. I don't like the nation states. I'd like to see them all dissolve. And I guess to wrap up some of my points, I think Chomsky was onto something because his books were banned in the United States and the Soviet Union. Mm hmm. Um. <clears throat> so here, here's the problem. This is a problem that I feel like we need to talk about a lot more and it's less of a, is this an economic system better? Is this economic system worse? Um, and more of just a factor of psychology and human nature, because I'm, I've talked to everybody from all walks of life, nine out of 10 people I can get to agree, for example, that the working class should own the means of production. Yes. That's very, that's an extremely easy sell. That's what I um, think socialism is at its core. Socialism is workers yeah. own the means of production. That was not the case in the Soviet Union, though. No, the state did. Yeah. Um, because they never... Which was a bureaucratic, uh, highly powerful, highly authoritarian, and highly violent state, wasn't it? Um... <clears throat> Uh oh, I got him on the ropes here. No, I'm just, I'm not, I'm really not trying to win an argument. But I mean, no, no, it's fine. I think it's clear that um, Stalin was one of the worst criminals in in modern history. Uh, a lot of Marxists say that's not true, but I, I think 
he did a lot of bad stuff. Uh, Hitler did a lot of bad stuff too. But if he would have been assassinated in, uh, I think, 1939, he'd have went down as the most popular German uh, leader of all time. A lot of good things were happening in Germany. Um, as long as you weren't, you know, Jewish, as long as you weren't scapegoated, as long as you weren't targeted. So his forced industrialization, um, was working for some people, you know, in German, Germany, um, in the forced industrialization of the Soviet Union worked for the commissar class. Certainly you always got to look at the winners and losers of these things. Um, and the way I see it, I don't think necessarily Russia was a peasant society, but I'm not all that sure that workers had it that all that much better off. Following, you know, maybe 1918, when a lot of the workers' councils and organizations were uh, kind of torn down after, uh, you know, the Bolshevik coup, as I call it. And I don't go too deep into history. Let's like keep it more modern. But you know, what, which this is this is kind of where where the unstoppable object uh, meets the immovable force or whatever. You know, uh, this is where I get into it with Marxists about the Soviet Union and the centralized uh, authoritarian state that was the Soviet Union, at least the way I see it. Um, so two things here. I think, like I said before, one thing we need to really talk about a lot more, and I understand why we don't, because, you know, psychology's for nerds. <laughs> um, I say that as someone who is a devout, uh, studier of it. Um, so I think we have a human problem wherein whenever a one person or a small group of people acquires immense amounts of power, it kind of breaks their brain. And I don't think this has anything to do with the economic system. I don't think this has anything to do with, um, like anything other than the power itself. And that's where that famous quote, um, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Kind of comes into play. And I'm not one of those Marxists who feels like it's ver it's it's like verboten to, uh, you know, discuss the mistakes that previous socialist regimes made. Like um, governments are power centers. These are not humanitarian institutions. All power centers, and they have a monopoly on violence. They all could use some, you know, they're all, all these all these countries, all these nation states. They're all, you know, xenophobic. They're all racist. Um, for example, let's go to Israel, putting, you know, uh, Jewish people above everyone else in, in their um, constant apartheid. Uh, and I guess, you know, not even uh, apartheid, but extermination and eradication of the Palestinians for that land. So that's an extreme example. Um, but I think you can find terrible examples of every country in world history. The United States is no city on a hill. Uh, we wouldn't be here today in the United States. Me as a descendant of uh, German and Czechoslovakian people. Um, I wouldn't be here, though, you know, the, the, the settlers from Europe, uh, if there wasn't a massive extermination and genocide of the Native Americans at the time. So every country has got a lot of history we got to learn from. You know, we don't want to sweep it under the rug. And I think the Soviet Union is no different. And the way I see the Soviet Union, I think it collapsed from within, as most empires do. The one thing I like, again, I'll have to go back to Chomsky here, but there was kind of two main propaganda centers in the world at the time uh, post-World War II, during the Cold War. Of course, the Western propaganda system, which is great, we're the most propagandized society, at least Americans and maybe Canada's up there, second or Britain second. I don't know. They're up there. Um, mm -hmm. But, uh, you know... 
the, the two things that the propaganda centers in the United States and in Russia agreed upon was the Soviet Union was socialist. Um, and the United States and the Western propaganda wanted to do that to defame socialism. And Russia wanted to do it to, you know, take the good name of socialism around the world and the Marxists around the world. It was very popular at the time, especially after World War II and the Nazis. Um, you know, it was very popular. But I think a core element of socialism is workers owning and controlling the means of production, not some powerful centralized state. So I don't, I don't think the Soviet Union was democratic, nor do I think it was socialist, nor do I think it was very far left. So... Here's here's what Marx wrote about essentially. There were <clears throat> there were two um, phases of communism. Effectively, um, first thing you have your rev- revolution, and then you need to use the power of the state essentially to suppress the capitalist forces in the in the uh, in in the uh, forgot a word. Love ADHD. Um, <laughs> in the con in the context of um, USSR, it was the Russian czars. Um, so you need to, um, quoting him almost verbatim here, need to use the power of the state to wrest control uh, from the capitalists. <clears throat> and you essentially need to use the government um, to suppress them. Now, they established normally what's called a dictatorship of the proletariat. Now, eventually, as Marx described, well, I think that was figurative, though. I don't think it was literal. I think that the Lenin and, and Stalin were literal dictators, uh, but I think he was using it literal, or I'm sorry, figuratively. I uh, could be wrong. Obviously, interpretation means many things to different people, but that's the way I see it. Well, the thing is, you can, like, there's so many, everybody's interpretation of a specific philosopher of which Marx was one. He was um, a good one, a very good one. Not one of my favorites, but a very good one. Damn good one when it came to capitalism, at least. Hell yeah, so, oh, no doubt, no doubt, absolutely, yep. Um, so, everybody's interpretation <clears throat> is different. But how is it supposed to go? Is, you know, after, after capitalism has been overcome, the state would wither away. Because the end goal for Marx, and this is something I try and... That's what I want, too, the more. state to wither away. I want the state to yeah. wither away. We're 100% on with that. The end goal for Marx was always a classless, stateless society. Now, some problems I personally at least see is that you have to move beyond the capitalism. And I feel like if you're going to do a revolution and you're going to leave the most capitalist predatory empire on Earth completely intact, might be some problems. And we kind of saw that because, well, the USR became a thing and then... Over in America, they created this nice little agency called the CIA. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean... Well, well, what doesn't get talked about here is the corporations. If the state withers away, we're still going to have these insanely powerful corporations to dominate and control our lives. So that's actually where I think we need to use the state in the short uh, run to have standards like OSHA and to have environmental standards um, to tax them. All those sorts of things. Uh, what I want to see is not only the state withering away, though, in time, but these corporations. Because if the state withers away and the corporations remain, we're done for. It's going to be even worse than in the dystopian reality we're already in. Um, yeah, I think that 
I think these corporations should be, should be dismantled and replaced with democratically uh, organized institutions, and that's why I call myself an anarcho-syndicalist. I want to get rid of hierarchy, domination. Uh, I want to get rid of concentrated wealth and power, which seems like corporations are the vehicles for capitalism to amass, you know, concentrated wealth and power. Um, and I would like, again, democratically organized institutions like co-ops and which our, our friend <laughs> Richard Wolf talks a lot about, Mondragon and... Yep. That's what my favorite time period is, the anarchist revolution in Spain, which was crushed, um, and it was crushed by uh, the capitalists, it was crushed by the Nazis, and I've even read some stuff that the communists, um, you know, the, certainly the Soviet Union, but some of the far-leftist communists uh, were in support of it. When I say far-left communists, I mean the anti-state branch, um, the socialist libertarian branch, the anarchist branch, people like Rosa Luxemburg, which I have this book right here. She was a big critic of the Soviet Union. Um, it was, you know, a very uh, powerful state. And it was a very violent state and it was a very authoritarian state. So I'm more in line with people like Rosa Luxemburg and I have Antonio Gramsci. Uh, I'm, that's why, again, that's my, my philosophy is anarchism. I think there's problems with all, all every state in human history. You know, go back to the days of... Genghis Khan or Attila the Hun, you know, and to modern day, any any system of power, um, you know, has a lot of problems to it. So I'd like to dismantle it. And just like Mark said, I'd love for it to wither away in time. But what also needs to wither away is these, you know, corporations that are destroying the planet that are, um, you know, maintaining control of the world's resources. Uh, I think first off, we need to overtake the uh, fossil fuel companies if we ever want to public overtake publicly overtake them if we ever want to take this environmental crisis seriously if we allow these um oil companies to keep digging up dinosaur bones to um you know to <laughs> destroy our uh environment and planet and ecosystem we're toast yeah um <clears throat> so i feel like collective ownership over the means of production is probably the ultimate stopgap when it comes to that these corporations um and what you, what you mean by that is like the the state collective ownership no the, like the work the the working class owning the means of production and i'm i'm not opposed to syndicalism for the record i do mess with it from time to time um we just need <clears throat> here's what i always found weird since i got my first job um Everybody, since we're kids, we're taught that dictatorships are bad. And, oh my god, like, authoritarianism, it's so bad. We all go to work every day under essentially what is a dictatorship. You've got a no guy question. at the top that makes every single decision, and you've got little managers that basically manage the workers and pacify them and make them feel okay with, with how badly they're getting treated. You're um, describing and, wage slavery, working under external yep. command of a master, renting yourself for subsistence, and I oppose that. In Indeed, as do I. And the thing is, like, that would be... Worker ownership over the means of production, in my opinion, would make the most people happy because it would... It would fix two, it would provide a stopgap for two fundamental problems. The first problem that I described before, wherein um wherein one group one person or one small group of people gets w way too much power. Because for example, like imagine you woke up tomorrow. Okay, now you're in charge of a million people. Like, think about that for a second. Think of the totality of what that does to your mind. Um I don't think human beings were ever meant to be put in these positions. 
or they're they're in charge of more people than they can ever meet or they can ever count. Um, I think it's I, unnatural. I, I think systems of yeah. hierarchy and domination are natural. And like you said, you can convince people that workers can own the means of production by just watching a couple of videos from Professor Wolf. I agree. It's 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 natural that we should be uh, we should have autonomy and control and there should be participation within the workplace on decision making. But if you ever worked for a corporation, you know damn right there's almost no participation if you find yourself at the middle, in the middle or near the bottom of that hierarchy. You can't go into the board of directors or into a, an executive meeting and say, hey, we need to be doing this and we need to start next week. Yes. Assuming you're not going to right away be uh, exited the building uh, and es- escorted out by security and you probably might even get fired, you know? Yeah. Um <clears throat> I went through that at one of my old jobs. Um, I can't, I can't ever confirm this 100%, but I was kind of like, you know, planting the union bug in the ears of a lot of my coworkers. Um, And this was, this is on me. I did this over teams or sorry, Slack. And I, I wasn't as educated at the time as to like how much of your private conversations your employer can see over things like teams and slack and and work like work communication apps um spoiler alert they can see all of it yeah that's kind of scary i bet you for some people that kind of made me think about what i was talking about today (laughs) yeah yeah that's i mean that's now now we're i mean maybe we should get into more into surveillance and censorship and big brother and you know and how the information system is controlled but yeah i mean I think a corporation is just a microcosm of the system. I mean, the whole system is, you know, one giant hierarchy with a small percentage of people, the 1%, or maybe even a fraction of the 1% on top, and everyone else, you know, trying to just get by and make a living. Um, yeah, I mean, no arguments there. Uh, but yeah, we can, uh, we can definitely talk about censorship if you like. I'm really outspoken about this issue in general. Um, and what about I'm, the, we under the universal declaration of human rights, which was, uh, I think signed after world war two, we all have the, uh, we should, at least in theory, be able to freely organize and, and join a trade union, you know? Um, but in the United States, a lot of times, um, conventions aren't followed. Sometimes laws aren't even followed when Reagan, uh, I think the air traffic controllers strike uh, broke them up. I mean, the United States labor history is very, very violent. Um, so talk to me, though, a little bit about that. So you planted the seeds of a union bug, or I'm sorry, of a you planted the seeds of a, maybe a union organizing effort, and you got some feedback, you got some pushback from work. Did you get penalized? Did you get in trouble? Did you, were you punished? Um. You could, you could say I got penalized <laughs> for sure. Um, <clears throat> so basically the situation there was nobody was getting any wage increases, but the biggest problem was that our work had us all working as independent contractors, but they were treating us like employees, which first off is not above the board. Um, but second of all, it, it kind of was something nobody wanted. Not only did we have to pay extra taxes, and um pay gsd because they refused to let us charge it but at the end of the day we all just wanted to be we just all wanted a home we just wanted benefits and a full-time you know we wanted job security and uh with this little loophole they discovered they could kind of keep everybody at arm's length and just discard anyone the second they became inconvenient 
Um, so I started talking to people and being like, okay, well, at the end of the day, we're the ones putting food on their table. We're the ones out here every day, you know, getting the work done, bringing in the money. They're, they're just sitting there and managing us and coming up with half-baked ideas on what could make one, uh, one initiative or another better. And the interesting thing about that is, you know, when you can just kind of feel like the temperature in a room shift, um, just in general, you just pick up like very small things about like how someone's behaving, like kind of differences. Like I'm big on pattern recognition. So I picked that up pretty quick. You're big um, into psychology, aren't you? Pardon me? You're big into the psychology, aren't you? Oh yeah. Um, but it's also for people with high degrees of emotional intelligence. It's like, you know, sometimes you can just tell when someone's in a bad mood, even if they don't show it. Um, yeah. Just based off little little differences you're you're noticing in their behavior. I so think that, of, let's go to human nature. I think that's part of human nature. This is interesting. Uh, I think that's part of the common sense. I think that, you know, when we're itemized and, you know, when you're on the top of a hierarchy, you could care less. But when you're on the same level as someone and you're around that person every single day, it's natural to just kind of pick up that, hey, they're not in a good mood today or something's changed. Something's up, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, so I just kind of sensed a shift. And then uh, shortly later, I was laid off for quote unquote attitude. Um, wow. Wow. <laughs> which is funny because they thought I was like the best employee on earth until these series of events started transpiring and then I went from a great employee to laid off for attitude. And I also kind of pointed out that it's like, okay, well you need us on a set schedule, but we're independent contractors. So you can't really do that and pushing back here and there. So I can't, I can't ever confirm 100% that I was uh, laid off for that specific reason, but it's, it's just kind of curious when you look at the timeline, if that makes sense. Certainly it didn't help. And then, you know, we got right to work laws, right to work states where basically you can be fired for almost no reason at all. And, uh, you know, now we can kind of even get into the gig economy. Uh, there's a lot of talks about jobs, 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 jobs. But the majority of these jobs are gig jobs, service jobs, minimal benefits, low pay, uh, minimal days off, no days off, maybe even uh, maybe poor benefits for health care. Um, just not, you know. Uh, not much security. Um, a lot of times, you know, they even, you know, the business press even talks about that's kind of good, good for the economy, uh, worker insecurity, which basically means, you know, when you go to bed at night, you don't know if you're going to get up tomorrow and still have that job. You know, that's good for the economy, at least good for some people, at least, uh, run the economy and own the society. So, yeah. Um, basically at the end of the day, and the funny part about how this saga ends is, um, the, the very like independent contractor kind of loophole they had that we were organizing and unionizing or talking about unionizing rather um, to kind of defeat pretty much worked completely in their favor in the end because, because I was the independent contractor um, laying off didn't come with severance. It didn't come with any uh, possibility of, uh, of wrongful dismissal because I mean, dismissing, like firing an employee because they had quote unquote attitude is a little nuts. Yeah. Um, they could just let me go because I was an independent contractor. And so they weren't bound legally uh, to do anything about it. So, 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of what the system that they're trying to do. I mean, again, I was quoting some figures, some jobs numbers, which in the United States, seven twenty-five an hour is not a living wage anywhere in this country. But they always talk about jobs numbers, uh, and they don't talk about you know wages, which is ridiculous, which hasn't kept up um, with inflation since the 70s. I think the real wages are about the same as they were in the late 70s, early 1980s here in the United States, although productivity has increased greatly, and certainly uh, executive compensation has exploded. Um, but that's what they want to do. They want to create a system where workers have less benefits, less stability, um, you know, less ability to, uh, you know, gain power and negotiate for higher wages and, and better benefits. What unions do is they increase, um, you know, uh, benefits, wages, improve working conditions, um, safety standards. They do that for everyone. Um, it has a it has a ripple effect throughout the entire um, community. And that's what they want to do is they want to get rid of unions. They want to, you know, if they can itemize employees, make them independent contractors, the gig economy, pay them less benefits um, and greater worker insecurity. Again, to quote the business presses, that just means, you know, when you go to sleep at night, you don't know if you're going to have a job in the morning. And that's what they want. Right to work laws. Um, these are all good things um, for the economy. And I go, I go back to the. Uh, economics, which is, you know, a, a ridiculous elitist um, subject matter, which is basically to uh, justify, you know, uh, low skilled wages or not paying um, workers a living wage to justify poverty, to justify inequality. I just, you know, you read through some of the arguments in the economic textbooks um, and maybe when you're younger, you believe some of this stuff. But when you start to radicalize yourself and look around and realize a lot of these arguments are just nonsense. Um, you know, it, it, it just kind of, um, you know, it's kind of sad that people are still believing some of this dogma. For example, let's go to the economic dogma, um, where for some reason we have to have like some degree of unemployment because that's a good thing because if we have zero unemployment, workers are going to have too much power. You know, they're going to ask for higher wages and that, and that sort of stuff. So you have to have some degree of unemployment, which is natural to the system, um, in order to discipline the workforce, in order to say, hey, you know, if you don't, if you don't take this job for this low pay, we're going to get someone in here that will. There's plenty of unemployed people right now, so there has to be. That's supposedly healthy for the economy. The thing about it is, capitalism is not even a good system for putting people to work. There's millions of, and millions of unemployed people around the work, and there's certainly no. Uh, shortage of jobs to be done. Just go ahead and look around your local community. I have this little um, pamphlet right here, the report card by the uh, uh, it's a comprehensive assessment of America's infrastructure, which got uh, rated as a C minus. Um, energy C minus. Drinking water C minus. Dams D. Roads D. Um, public transportation in the United States it's almost non-existent. At least high speed rail is. Um, you know, so uh, again, there's no shortage of jobs that be, need to be done, uh, be done, and we also have a, uh, you know, an, an unsustainable energy system based on fossil fuels. We have an oil-based economy. I, I loved when the Green New Deal was being talked about during the Trump administration, um, but unfortunately, and of course, you're not a, uh, you know, you're not an American citizen, uh, but you know a little bit about American politics. But as soon as Biden got in the White House, that all went away. Now it's just, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the same establishment, um, just with a little bit better rhetoric, uh, more inclusive rhetoric, uh, and not as uh, vile, uh, the rhetoric. Um, but yeah, 
a lot of people were calling you know Trump um, a fascist. Um, I don't think he, I don't think his political philosophy was that sophisticated. I think Trump was just in uh, his political philosophy was you know me 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 you know uh, improve and increase my wealth and power and I'll say pretty much anything if it'll get me another term in in the White House. I don't think uh, I don't I think calling Trump a like a fascist or some sort of um, complex sophisticated political ideology that would be giving him too much credit. I would say, um, I, I would say Trump is just a narcissist. Yes, He's a classic textbook, uh, grandiose narcissist. Here you go, <clears throat> Mr. Psychology. Here you go. No, that's good. I agree, though, totally. Um, because there's uh, there's historically two types of narcissists. There's a grandiose narcissist who is Trump to a T. Just think of Trump. That's it. I'm the best. I'm better than everybody else. Um, anybody who uh, Anybody who goes against me, I'm going to paint the black, and I'm going to come up with admittedly hilarious nicknames for them. I'm sorry, the nicknames wow. is really funny. They I've are funny. Found that hilarious. I can just when you said that, I can just hear Trump saying, "I'm the best narcissist. I'm the best. Nobody's a better narcissist than me." <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, but yeah, it's. Um, I I think that was about it. He. Uh, I I think Donald Trump would do. Absolutely. Like, I think he would uh, become like a Marxist overnight if he knew for a fact that it would get everybody's like approval and adoration. I don't I don't think he has a solid set of convictions. I think he's looking for whatever is going to make him um, make him uh, achieve the prime aims, which is uh, control, which is uh, adoration or uh, narcissistic supply, as you call it, which is basically like praise. Um, I think that's it. And I think that makes him dangerous only insofar as that if anybody figures that out, they can basically play him like a fiddle because all they have to do is praise him and (laughs) like, you know, um, grease his wheel so to speak and he'll probably do whatever he wants for them because unbeknownst to him and unbeknownst to most narcissists because they don't um they're not aware of any of this behavior it's instinctual um he he basically thrives for the applause and so if he um if and he definitely lacks self-awareness totally agree with that definitely lacks self-awareness and would say literally anything and and have would have no clue that he just contradicted himself five seconds before you know yep See, the dangerous narcissists are the ones who are self-aware. Those are those are the great white sharks that you need to steer clear of in the ocean that is uh, uh, the human species, because they're aware of what they are. And uh, now we're getting into: would they be um, sociopaths? Maybe. Oh, with, without without question, I believe there's statistics to actually back this. Although I can't. Um, I'd be recalling from memory, but like psychopathy, outright psychopathy and like sociopathic Machiavellian traits, they're, they're across the board when it comes to billionaires, when it comes to CEOs, when it comes to anyone at the higher end of the capitalist, um, the capitalist hierarchy. Um, they actually did a, a, a video called corporations. It won a bunch of awards and they actually went down the textbook definition of, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, psychopath. And they had literally every tendency. That's how they behave. So I guess, you know, a lot of these corporations are run by psychopaths and they behave like psychopaths too. I mean, they destroy anyone that gets in their way, including the environment. Um, just went on and on and on. But yeah, that's where I, 
I mean, Trump is one thing, and certainly he was powerful, but I am much more... I mean, the state is all we have to protect us. Again, I'll go back to um, I'll go back to environmental standards. Um, you know, taxing uh, benefits, the eight-hour workday. If we didn't have a state to protect us, like hopefully over time the state withers away. But if we didn't have the state to protect us, um, these corporations would be uh, they would own and dominate every aspect of our life. Um, and and I think the other thing is um, automation, computers. These were all. Um, you know, developed in the public sector through taxpayer money for decades. And now, because we're in such a cutthroat capitalist system where social safety nets, nets are eroding here and in Canada, um, now we're even competing with these automated programs and computers for our jobs. Um, and I think, you know, I don't like Andrew Yang. I, I disagree with a lot of what he says. But the one thing about his political and presidential campaign, I'm all for, and I think a lot of people on the left are for and should be for, is universal basic income. Uh, what we need to do is at least make capitalism a little bit more benign, and we can use the state to do that. Uh, but we can't just reform capitalism. We need to get rid of it. And I think the way to get rid of it would be workers owning and controlling and taking over um, the means of production. I think unions are great, but they're only the first step uh, in transforming this system and making the planet more livable. And I think we gotta we got to make some moves here with the environment. Every article I read is worse than the last, and the last was very grim in terms of the outlook for the environment and um, the human species and this climate crisis that could be the death of us all. Um, so, yeah, I think the only way that you know these psychopathic corporations run by people with personality disorders um, and, and you know megalomaniacs, um, I think the only way to overtake um, you know the, the current system and overthrow capitalism and put in a much better system in place would be to first transform and democratize the workplace. Um, and that's why I love anarcho-syndicalism. I think these corporations, they have a lot of power and value to offer society, but if they continue to be run by a small group of elites, we're all doomed, and, and the environment is toast. And if the environment goes, we go too. And they're not taking us to Mars. If they ever do this billionaire space race, I have a newsflash for everybody. Billionaires are not coming to save us, and if they can... If they can go to Mars and terraform it, which seems like a tall order, um, they're certainly not taking this with us. There, there are going to be a small group of elites going to Mars, which I don't think is going to be realistic anyways. But let's say it happens off in the next hundred or so years. Again, they're going to leave us to rot on this planet and they're going to go start their old, own little colony there. <laughs> you know what I mean? To be honest, I think they wouldn't only go start their own com uh, like little community there i think they would still force us to work on earth i think 100 percent. they would they would be like no no you guys are staying here and if you want your little jobs you'll keep mining for yeah. for our, uh for the sh the stuff we need over here um i think <clears throat> i think that's a definitive um i'm in full agreement um i think I think workplace democracy is one of the biggest things. That let's let's go to unions. Let, let's go to unions. Obviously, you got to be for unions, right? So what do you, let's talk about unions and uh, maybe, you know, the first step would be unions. And then, you know, what do you think about, again, workers owning and controlling the means of production? How do you see all that working out? Um, so for me personally, I, um, I think the first thing we need to do, and this is going to be a full-time job, but I think it's imperative – we we need to reach class solidarity because I hate to burst people's bubbles, but we're not there. No, we still we still have people, 
And like, again, I'm, I'm all for good faith criticisms on, on how the past communist regimes failed, the mistakes that were made here and there. I'm all for these good faith criticisms of these systems. Um, but the problem is you have to wade through an endless sea of propaganda and falsehoods in order to get to those good faith criticisms. Every single person on the left should be embracing self-crit, but we never get to self-crit because there's so much propaganda out there that we have to just wade through it. But the most important thing to me is that we get to a point where we do have that class solidarity and the propaganda is still running so deep that you have so many people who still think, you know what, if I just work hard enough and I make the right decisions and the the onus is all on the person, by the way, not the system, of course. Um, you know, if I just like do this magical combo move, like it's a Mortal Kombat game, I'll, you know, I'll be successful and I'll be rich and I'll be like one of the other people. And they erroneously believe that everybody can do this, but they can't. They can't under capitalism. There always needs to be exploiting and there needs to be people who are being exploited. It's how the system was designed. So really, you can try and escape it all you like, but there's always going to be people you need to exploit in order to make that a reality. The poor people exist because we can never satisfy the greed of the rich. And then Mm -hmm. I, I wrote this down too. Part of my journey was finally coming to the realization that, yes, I'm working class. And sometimes when I read history... Now I identify with the slaves or the peasants, you know, uh, maybe mm-hmm. when I was a little bit younger and, you know, didn't do as much reading and didn't get how the world and the interplay. I think that now that I see it, uh, the history of humanity is a history of class struggle. And you can go back to any time period. You can even go back to um, some of the uh, indigenous people in the Americas prior to um, Columbus. Uh, they, they were class societies, elites, and, and people in a dominated and controlled society. It certainly wasn't all perfect here on this side of the Atlantic prior to the European colonizers, but when they got here, they made it much worse. Um, but yeah, I'm working class. I, I, and now when I read you know medieval history or watch some stuff like that, I identify with the peasants who actually, I think it's worth saying here, I think they got like something like 150 days off a year. Can you imagine if you got 150 days off? Um, again, we're going back to you know wages haven't kept up, at least here in the United States. I mean, like Canada and the United States are pretty similar, so I'm sure the stats weren't much different. Um, but you know, no. wages haven't kept up with inflation for decades. Although, you know, technology has greatly increased, productivity has greatly increased, um, and yet, you know, benefits and wages continue to stagnate. Working hours are getting longer. We won the working, we won the eight-hour day in the 1900s, and we lost it all, not too much after that. Uh, it wasn't a gift from above. It was, uh, it was won through and granted because of hard-fought struggle by labor. But even talking about the commute, talking about the lunch break, where I don't get paid on my lunch break, that's part of the eight-hour day. I think the eight-hour day should be, you spend eight hours getting to work, working, eating your lunch, all that kind of stuff. There's mandatory overtime, um, being on call, um, meetings. I've, I've had meetings in the evening where they're like, hey, we're just going to do a quick little 15-minute phone call that goes 45 minutes. You know, that's, that's part of the eight-hour day, too. I mean, uh, you know, again, we, working hours are increasing. We won the eight-hour day over a century ago. It's certainly time for the 32-hour work week, um, the, four, the four-day work week. And I'm tired of people at the Capitol saying, yeah, the four-day work week it would be great. Let's do four tens. No, not four tens. No, four not tens. four tens. Um, but, yeah, again, I'm going back to my points as I kind of 
keep going here. Uh, a lot of people in America think they're billionaires and waiting, inconvenienced millionaires, and they're just workers with Stockholm Syndrome. What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's exactly how I feel about it. And it's such, I'm going to be honest, it's such a clever, it's such a clever scam. It's such a clever scam that it's all your fault if you're not making it in a naturally exploitative system. It's your fault that you're, you're, you're not a, you're not a manager or you're not like a, like a board executive or something, or you're not like thriving in your own business. Um, it It's the most clever scam ever. And it's, it's it's it, it, to me at least it's not dissimilar to how people view the lottery. Um, I tweeted buy- this before the American dream was has been replaced with the lottery or just basically wanting to get by. You know, at one point there was an American dream where you go to college, you take vacation, you retire, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, maybe even on one income, but that's all gone now. Now people are just trying to get by and. The American dream is, hey, maybe I'll be the one in a billion that wins the lottery, and then I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. I, I don't got any of these problems anymore, which is just ridiculous. It's, it's not going to win. And, and here's what the lottery does. It it, uh, it victimizes or, I guess, preys on the most vulnerable members of society. Yep. And I mean... <laughs> And I mean, this was always this was always a reality under capitalism because I mean, we've mentioned a lot of things here. We've mentioned, you know, gig jobs and independent contractor stuff. At the end of the day, what the capitalists want is they want they've been actively for decades figuring out ways to get the labor. They love the labor; that's their favorite part. Um, with without without putting in putting in like the most minimal compensation for that labor and there lies the most inherent contradiction of the capitalist system which both uh, Karl Marx and Richard Wolff uh, touch on in great length which is you have one group of people that you are continually trying to reduce the uh, cost of paying them for their labor but the problem is that same group of people you depend on to have purchasing power to purchase your goods and services. And this is where stuff like credit comes from. I mean, it's gotten so bad in 2023. I see fast food restaurants that have purchasing plans where like you can order a pizza and you can pay it off over like a month for a pizza. And so that's basically how bad it's gotten. But my point is like, they're actively trying. I mean, these people would just go back to feudalism in a second if they could. Which isn't but, much different. Kings and queens are just replaced with corporate executives. We still have landlords. Isn't that a feudalistic term? I mean, these mm-hmm. systems are similar, aren't they? Um, they absolutely are. Insofar as um, this isn't my analogy. This is from Richard Wolf himself, but. The things all of these groups have in common, whether it's serfs, whether it's employees, whether it's uh, slaves outright, is someone else is determining what to do with the uh, surplus value of that person's labor. Now you're sounding like Richard Wolf. Did you just <laughs> did you just have a transformation? Look at this guy. That's why I had to give him a call out because yeah. it's a brilliant video you can find. I've um, seen it. Yeah, I posted it as education, but it's like. It's like the person who who works is not in charge of the value of 
the work they're doing. And that's what all of these things have in common. Someone else's, and it's in one system or another. And usually they desert, they decide on some level or another whether or not this person can thrive or or uh or perish in various means. But um yeah. We got how, how much longer do you want to go here? Can you go another 10 minutes? We'll be we'll get done. Uh, I guess that would make it uh 10:56 my time. Would that work for you for another 10 minutes or you want to be done sooner than that? Uh I do have a hard stop at 11. Um So is that four more minutes for you or That's five more minutes for me. Okay. Um Let's do a couple uh let me do a couple quick questions here and then we'll get you out of here. Sure. Okay? Yeah. UFOs, aliens, are we alone in the universe? I think it's statistically impossible that we're alone in the universe. Um, just other other places like Alpha Centauri, I mean, you know, there's, there's obviously other inhabitable planets on this Earth. Um, interesting question, because I'm playing Starfield right now, so it's <laughs> all, I'm all about the, the life on other planets thing right now, but yeah, um, let me, uh, def- definitely UFOs for let sure. Let me get to a couple. Let me get to a couple quick ones, and I'll give you a little time to plug whatever you want. Uh, the war on drugs. Who won it? Uh, drugs did, and they yeah. will continue to win it forever. We'll win it forever. Do you believe in ghosts? Um, I don't think ghosts make sense to me in their current form. I do know energy cannot be uh, created or destroyed, so I think. Um, I, I think your energy may go somewhere, uh, but not go somewhere. What happens when you die? I have no idea, and I'm completely okay with that. Um, I'm as agnostic as they come. I think... Same. Me too. I, I literally, like, I don't think we even have the capacity to understand the inner workings of the universe. What I is think it God? is... What is that even question? It's intelligible to me. God is... I think God is hope. I think Ooh. God. I think God is whatever. We got whatever. Last, we got like two questions here. Uh, mm-hmm. What gives you hope, and what's the meaning of life? And then plug whatever you want. I'm done. I, I want to get you out of here. Make sure you get your show on time. What is hope? Uh, what's the meaning of life? And plug whatever you want. And you've been an awesome guest. So whenever you got to sign off, sign off. Uh, it was great talking. Hopefully we can do it again. I, I had a good time. Of course, I had a good time too. Um, hope to me is. Uh, the idea that tomorrow is going to be better than today. Um, and I would say the meaning of life is, um, the meaning of life is, it's a little related, but I think the meaning of life is to leave the world a little bit better place than when you found it. But I also think that the meaning of life is absolutely whatever you make of it. And I think we need to take more, um, more ownership over that. Plug anything you want to plug. Where can people find you? Talk about the shows you're on, and we'll get you out of here. Sure. Uh, you can follow me at uh, you can follow me at Snow Himbo. Uh, you can check out my YouTube channel. Just type Snow Himbo into YouTube or at Snow Himbo, and uh, please check out the uh, Indie News Network (INN) uh, on YouTube, Rockfin, all the platforms really. Uh, and uh, we do have a show called Nobody Wants to Work Anymore. 
Thanks, my friend. Snow Himbo is a good time. I'll edit the show and I'll get it out to you tonight. Uh, good luck on your uh, continued success on all your platforms. And uh, again, I appreciate your time. Had a had a great, uh, it was entertaining. Had a good time tonight. I had a blast, my friend. We should do this again. Yep, let's do it again. Have a good night. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Necessary Illusions. I also want to thank my special guest, Snow Himbo, for a great discussion tonight on Canadian politics, Marxism, capitalism, propaganda, and the media, among many other topics. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out. Thank you.